So um, we've been going through a series on the happy life, uh, and this week I'm looking at good news is better than bad news. And I've been telling a few people this title this week, and they've, thought, and they've told me, it's a bit of a stupid title really, isn't it? Because it's like saying good is better than bad. But essentially what it's saying is good news versus bad news. We have this option to make day after day. And so some of you remember... Um, From the news a few weeks ago, um, in fact, it was uh, exactly a week ago last Saturday, in Hawaii at 8.07 in the morning, there was a desperate alert message that went around. Some of you may have seen photos of this that said this, ballistic missile, all in caps, you know, it's serious, ballistic missile threat inbound to Hawaii, seek immediate shelter, this is not a drill. Isn't that an immensely dramatic message? And it's, if you think about it, I mean, it's quite funny now because we know it was, you know, sent back and it wasn't real. But you think about what would happen if you got that? What would happen if you received a message like that? What would your priorities be at, say, I don't know, 8.05 on a Saturday morning? And how that changed five minutes later. The things you were thinking about, the priorities you had, the things you were going to do with your day the people you wanted to go speak to, your story in that moment immediately changed because of news, because of a critical news that just changed everything. Now, praise God, Hawaii did not get hit by an intercontinental ballistic missile that destroyed the whole islands. They're fine. But that kind of news just changes everything. And when we're looking at the gospel... We're looking at something that's called good news, but good doesn't really do it justice. We're looking at the kind of news that has transformed people's lives for thousands of years, that has taken people who were terribly afraid and made them fearless, has taken people who were hopeless and filled them with hope. A good news that has transformed people's lives. And just like with the Hawaii accidental alerts, We have a gospel message that changes everything. It changes our story completely. And our stories affect everything about who we are. The story we choose to live in, the story we're surrounded with affects our relationships. It affects where we find purpose. It affects what we value. And so our story is actually really important. Knowing the story that we live in is pretty critical to know where am I going And you can explain the gospel story through bits of news. If you begin all the way back in Genesis, you begin with God creating the world out of nothing and proclaiming as a proclamation over all of creation, it is good. And then a chapter or so later, we see sin enter the world. And he proclaims over sin, this is bad. This is terribly bad. But he doesn't end there. He says, but... One will come, your, uh, an a ancestor of you, sorry, not an ancestor, the way around, a descendant of you will come and will crush the head of the snake. He's proclaiming a promise that one is coming. And then we see all the way through the Old Testament. Some of you have read bits of the Old Testament, and it's quite repetitive. And it, it, there's a bit of a cycle that basically goes, God says, do this and don't do this. And then his people go and do exactly that. Go and do exactly what they were commanded not to do. And he proclaims over them time and time again, this is disobedient. This is evil. This is not what you were intended to do. But, and he repeats this promise over and over again, there is one coming. There is one coming who will crush sin, who will crush death in this world and bring eternal life. 
And we see all the way through the Old Testament leading up to Emmanuel, God with us. And we see angels and shepherds and wise men proclaiming, this is God. This is the promise we have been waiting for. And we start to see Jesus grows up. He starts to um, be revealed as the Messiah that the Jews have been waiting for. And we see Peter declaring to Jesus, you are the Christ. You are the one that we've been waiting for. And then perhaps the most poignant, perhaps the most mm, memorizing uh, picture of news that God gives us is the picture of his son on the cross. If there's any headline news that we couldn't avoid, it's the picture of God, the creator of the world, nailed to a cross by his creation. What a scandal. But it's a picture, it's news that God proclaims over us when Jesus says it is finished. The news doesn't end there because we see Jesus conquers death. Um, Sin could not hold him. The grave could not hold him. And he rises victorious, conquering Satan, sin, and death. And, and, And the word is proclaimed over him. He is risen. And we're almost there. We're almost at the end. The story doesn't end there because what he then says is, you will be sent. I am sending you out. This news is with you, equipped with you. This joy, this hope, this good news for all the nations is with you. I'm sending you, but not on your own. I'm sending with you a Holy Spirit who will fill you, equip you, strengthen you, give you hope when you're hopeless. And then we see the final book of the Bible, book of Revelation. We see the news proclaimed that he is coming again. This wonderful hope that we have. And friends, this is the gospel story. I've taken a massive thing and compressed it down to something tiny. But this is the kind of news like the Hawaii alert that will over and over again shock us that we live in a completely different story from what we began life with. We began life in a story that, that wasn't going anywhere. Everything we know in this world is it's frankly often quite depressing. The things that we value, the relationships that we love, the things that we hold dear to us in this world don't last. And so when God comes with a story that says, there is something more to life than this. There is a hope you can live for. There is a Jesus who has died for your sin and given you new life. This is a whole story that changes everything. But the gospel story is more than just news that we hear about and then switch off from. Some of you are news addicts like me, and the uh, way I consume news is like 400 stories at once, and I'll just like get really, really into them and scroll, 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 and I'm into my iPhone, so like it's so easy to get news, but then I lock my phone and it's gone, and I'm suddenly thinking about something else. When I hear news, when I consume news, it's something that's there fleetingly. The gospel is a different kind of news. The gospel is something where God calls us to step into this story, to make it our own, not to just hear it and then walk away from it, but to hear it, to allow it to enter into us and live with us. And friends, when this meeting finishes, when we go home, we're not in the same building, we're not singing the same songs necessarily, but that gospel message hasn't left us. That good news that God has written over us isn't going anywhere. It goes with us. David Platt says this, God's revelation in the gospel not only reveals who he is, but also reveals who we are. There is rarely any other news that is more personal. Sometimes we read some news and we're like, oh man, I saw that guy live once. Or, oh man, I think I've heard of that before. And there's little personal connections with bits of news that we hear. 
But this news is written to us, for us. It's immensely personal and it lives with us. And if we open ourselves up to it, it will change our lives. We see Paul has shared the gospel uh, and he talks about in Philippians why it has given him hope, why the past is dealt with, why our past shame and guilt has been dealt with. He talks about the present. He talks about how he's, he's in prison, but God is using it for his glorious purposes. He talks about the present, how that's sorted. And then he goes on to talk about the future. He talks about why we should be hopeful in this world. He talks about the way we should think in this world. He gives us a hope for how we should live out this good news. For how we should live with this good news in mind all of the time. Um, Tim Keller has this great quote. He says this, Most people sit in today's joy foreseeing the coming sorrows. Christians sit in the midst of this world's sorrows, tasting in the coming joy. Let me explain it again. Most people sit in today's joy, right? I've got the temporary things around me. This is good right now. Let me not think about the future, about getting old, about dying. Let's not think about those things and not talk about them because I am afraid of them. I genuinely don't know what's happening because I will lose everything I love and value. That's how the world thinks about life and thinks about death. Christians, it's the other way around. They sit in the midst of the world's sorrows, tasting the coming joy. You know what? I'm not afraid of the future. I'm not afraid of getting old. I'm not afraid of when I lose my job. I'm not afraid of when the people around me die because I live for this joy and this hope in Christ. This is a hope, friends. This means we can live with reckless abandon for the way that God called us to live. This is such wonderful hope. So we have to ask ourselves, what does it mean to taste this joy? What does it mean to walk in this? And Paul is going to explain for us. If you want to turn to Philippians 4.8, it's going to come up behind us. But generally, as a, as a rule, particularly if you're quite new to being a Christian, sure, we'll have all the, the verses up there. And, you know, they're great and it'll be helpful and you don't have to scrabble around. But if you're a little bit new to Christianity, take every opportunity, search the scriptures, open it in front of you. Because when it's something you're used to reading, you're used to finding where stuff is and knowing how to consume it, 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 it makes it a little more tangible. And I think it's so helpful. I mean, I'm saying I don't even have a Bible in front of me. So I'm, I mean, I am being a hypocrite here, but the word is so valuable. And when we open it, we're opening a book that's unlike any other book we read. We're opening something that God wrote specifically to instruct us, to lovingly guide us, to shape and mold the way we think and the way we live. He says this, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Lord God, we thank you for this good news. We thank you, Jesus, that unlike any other story we will ever hear in this world, this is both life-changing and personal. Lord God, we thank you that you wrote this for us, that it would transform the way we think, and what we depend upon, what we love. I thank you, Jesus, that you have yet more joy for us. I pray, Lord God, would we be molded and shaped by you. God, we ask... We pray against the enemy, the lies he, he proclaims over us, the false stories he, he proclaims over us over and over again. God, would we know your truth and would your truth set us free? Amen. In your beautiful name, amen. 
Amen. So we're going to begin with line by line. This verse is great because you can kind of unpack each little bit. Sometimes um, when you open the scriptures, they're a bit complicated. You're like, you've got to jump around here and then over here and then back to here again. This uh, particular verse is quite easy to unpack. So we're going to begin with finally, brothers. And we see Paul who's dealt with the past, dealt with the present, and he's looking forward to the future. And, and the way he's referring to us is as family. And when the scriptures talk to us, um, the writers of scripture relate to us as family, there's a wonderful affection there. But there's also a bit of a seriousness. There's also a bit of a seriousness. And the Bible has lots of moments where it actually, um, it actually makes us a little bit uncomfortable. And it gets up close. And it can even be a little bit intrusive. And some of you have the joy of traveling on London's public transport. And you know these moments, uh, maybe 7.52 a.m. tomorrow morning, and you'll, be, um, and, and you'll be spooning gently the commuter in front of you. <laughs> and, and you'll know that the, the, there's no personal space. Personal space has died a long time ago. And, and, and you're living, and it's intrusive, but it's just life. You've just come to accept that this is what I have to do for the rest of my career. I'm, I'm writing. And in some sense, the Bible, in a different way, the Bible is a bit like that. It gets all up in your personal space. You can't escape the Bible. It speaks so directly to us. It, like The Bible uh, speaks of itself like a sword that cuts straight through and goes straight through to our hearts. And the reality is God wants to speak to us. And what Paul's talking about here is how we think. Like, it doesn't get much more intrusive than that. Like, not only should you act this way, not only should you say these things, but here's how you should think. If that's intrusive, I, I, like, if that's not intrusive, I don't know what is. And so God is calling us here to, because we've been saved by grace, because he's come and completely changed our life, because he's, turned, he's called us to turn from our sin and turn to him, it means our thoughts need to tr- be transformed. And so this is why he's coming with brothers, brothers and sisters, listen to me. This is not easy to hear, but it's so important that we understand it and we live this. And he dives into it like this. He says, whatever is true is the first line. This word true is the word aletheis in New Testament Greek. And it's used 24 times throughout the New Testament. And about half of them, this word truth is talking about either God is true or God's word is true. And the theme of true is super, super important in the Bible. I think contrary to some um, modern day evangelicals where it's not really about truth, it's more about feelings. And God's like, oh, this like airy fairy thing, the myths we're at. Like wonderfully, we have resources like Alpha that say, no, God is true. You do not have to leave your brain behind when you become a Christian. There is a truth, a foundation of truth underneath it. And when I became a Christian, I was so blessed um, that uh, a person I got to spend a lot of time with was a guy who, in the end, went to go study law at Oxford. And he he just had all of these amazing, uh, when I asked him and asked what I thought were quite difficult questions, he just spoke time and time again of um, a Jesus who was logical and understandable and a faith that wasn't just, well, you just believe, which is what I'd heard before. No, 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 this is a God you can actually believe in and know. There is genuine evidence for him. But more than that, we see the Bible talking about truth as being presented as a true and trustworthy source as one who has demonstrated that he is both God and both um, wants to know you, that he came down to earth, um, demonstrated that he was God and came to us. And we have this wonderful foundation to stand on of truth. 
And Paul calls us to think of whatever is true. And we have to fight for truth. We have to fight for truth. Like this year alone in politics, I'm not going into the detail because it's messy and I'll be here all night. But this year has been a messy year for truth. Could we agree that? I think fake news was the word of the year last year or this year or something like that. But like the reality is truth is complicated at the moment. And particularly in postmodern thought, um, sometimes truth is, assi- is, um, d- is called relative in postmodern world. Right? Relative means, well, what's true for you is true for you. What's true for me is true for me. And it's okay to have these differing truths floating around with each other, you know, as if we live in these different universes that don't really affect each other. Like, I'm an engineer, and that's not how truth works in engineering. That's not how it works in physics. If, like, Ben's telling me, well, you know, like, there's this thing called gravity. I'm like, well, Ben, I don't really believe in gravity. That What's true for you is true for you. What's true for me isn't, you know, isn't your truth. If we were okay to disagree. No, 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 no. Truth is truth. And so as Christians, this means several things for us. It means we need to be comfortable knowing that the world around us will think something very different to us. One of the reasons that postmodernism's got to where it's at is just a, a general uncomfortability with disagreeing. Oh, do we have to disagree? Can't we just agree on everything and accept everything? The difficulty is you then say everything's not true. Because if everything's true, then nothing's true. Is kind of how it works. And so we have to get to this comfortability of knowing my neighbours, my co-workers, the people I love and care about who don't know Jesus, I'm just going to disagree with them. And that's okay. That is all right, friends. And it's okay to know that. It's just really helpful that we know what is true and we know why we believe it. Because the longer we spend in this world, the more we're going to be told things that completely disagree to what God says. And we have to know how to um, be um, standing firm on truth. I'm going to talk a little, little bit more about what this means and how this unpacks itself. But fundamentally, this world wrestles with truth and we need to be really firm and convinced on it. Charles Spurgeon says this, a lie can travel halfway around the world while the truth is putting its shoes on, (laughs) right? It's so much easier to believe things that are crazy and made up. It's really, really difficult to stick to something that's true. And and sometimes you think about Christianity, you're like, man, this seems so complicated, but it's also true. It's much easier to make up something that sounds fluffy and fairy and isn't really rooted in truth, but is attractive, The truth is not always attractive, but God is good, not just because he feels good, but because he's true, and that's why I'm still a Christian, right? Because I've dug and dug and keep digging, and he's still true, and we need to think about this and think in these ways, and as this world gets increasingly, um, sorry, this isn't number notes, I'm 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 laboring this a little bit more, but I think this is important. As our world gets increasingly un-Christian, so you'll notice we were a Christian nation, maybe 50 years or so. We're getting increasingly un-Christian and kind of like leaving over here. And when I first became a Christian, there were questions that my friends were asking me, my non-Christian friends were asking me, that I thought were difficult and hard. And now I was hanging out with a, a, you know, a 14-year-old at church this morning, and he was telling me about some of the questions his friends were asking me. I'm like, wow, they have got more complicated. They have got more difficult from when I became a Christian 10 years ago. Because our culture is becoming increasingly frustrated and, uh, and growing apart from Christianity. And we need to, more than ever, know why we believe what we believe. Right? Can't just, can't just assume it anymore. We can't just be like, well, this is just, it's just normal. It's just what Christians do. Because you're quite quickly going to have people being like, why do you do that? That's crazy. Actually, that's quite offensive that you believe that. And, and we need to know, actually, no, I believe this because it's true. And because I trust a loving God and I see why this is true. And, and that, that's how we'll be okay with it. You can't just assume these things. Anyway, right, moving on. 
Next up, he says, whatever is honorable. So first he said, whatever is true, we should think about these things. Whatever is honorable. Honorable. Jesus honored us. The Bible says that while we were still in our sin, God died for the unrighteous. What he did is, um, you'll notice when he died on a cross that all of the people who said, I will never betray you, I will never leave you, did exactly that and became cowards. And they ran away. And all the people who were supposed to be great Christians and actually went on to write books of the Bible betrayed him and ran away. And they're a picture of us. It's really easy to point at them and laugh and be like, wow, man, those guys really sucked as disciples. There's a picture of us. It's a picture of the way that we treat God, that we dishonored him that we continue to, day by day, sometimes dishonor him. And yet he relentlessly honors us. He relentlessly chooses to treat us as we do not deserve. And what this means is that we now have to honor other people. Not have to, we get to honor other people. We have this amazing privilege of being to others as Jesus has been to us. And this is not just talking about actions. This is not just talking about the words we say. This is talking about the thoughts we think. How honoring are your thoughts? That's an intrusive question. But God, God wants us to honor people with our thoughts, to see the good in them, to bless them and honor them with the way we think about them. Uh, he says elsewhere in bits of the Bible, like, if you hate your neighbor, it's as if you murdered them. If you lost after your neighbor, it's as if you committed adultery. Your thoughts matter. And they matter because God sees it. They matter because they also mold and shape our actions. And so if we begin with our thoughts, we'll then change our actions. And it's only so much when you can give lip service, right? Jesus cut straight to the heart with that with Pharisees, who would you know, say one thing but actually mean something else. We need to honor people with our thoughts. We need to see the good in them. We need to choose to not be, not be foolish, not be, hey, do you want my house keys? Right? But choosing to bless them and honor them with the way we're thinking. It takes time. It takes time of asking the Holy Spirit, God, would you change my thoughts? Would you change the way I think? But this is what honors and glorifies God. Next up, he says, whatever is just. You can maybe phrase this as whatever is righteous. And I guess you can see the picture of this. Romans 12, 2 says this, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Often, um, people don't necessarily sin because they explicitly hate God, but because they live within a different story, a different God, different definitions of evil. When we have been justified by God, it means that things like our standard of what is good, what is righteous, is changed. It means we see God's righteousness as this glorious, beautiful picture. And it means suddenly we see ourselves differently. Wow, God, you redeemed me. You rescued me. I see how far I I fall short from the standard. And I'm reminded by this righteousness. And he he calls us to to, to think righteous thoughts, which is a bit of an odd thing to say. Unlike some of the other books, I wrestled with this a little more. How do we think righteous thoughts? I think that my understanding, my interpretation of this... If it's, if it's taking, you have been reconciled, you have been bought with a price, and therefore choose to see things through that lens. Choose to see things through that lens. I've been reconciled and ransomed, and therefore I'm supposed to be righteous as he is righteous. 
I need to not think of things of this world which are unrighteous. I'm not supposed to fill my mind with things that are unhelpful, but instead to fix my eyes on his righteousness. We are drastically affected by the things in this world. We, um, I'm, part, I'm part of an industry that helps um, craft digital user experiences, so I make apps and things like that. And, and one of, really, the, the design um, traits of what we do is to help immerse people and engage people and get their attention and grab hold of what they think and, if you like, control it a little bit. That's what our, um, our media tries to do, and it, 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 because if you want to absorb someone and tell a story well, you want to grab their attention. And there are some things within what we consume that we need to be a little careful of. Is this helping me to think with righteousness in mind? And it's not easy, because you want to say, I'm free. I'm free to do whatever I like. I'm free by grace to watch what I like and to consume what I like. But God says, no, 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 you're supposed to think with righteousness. And so if there's something that doesn't help that, if there's something that, that um, takes and grabs your attention in an unhelpful way, which you, we're called to say no to that. This is connected to the next point, which says this. Whatever is pure. Now, purity can be misconstrued a little bit sometimes. Let me define it. Purity is good things that God has made used in a way that God intended. Right? Impurity is also good things being used in a way that God did not intend. And uh, there's an example in 1 Corinthians that I think is quite helpful to illustrate this. Paul is talking about people who commit sexual sin, idolatry, adultery, homosexuality, theft, greed, drunkenness, insulting, deceitful. He, he covers lots of, lots of boxes. And he says, and such were some of you, but you were washed. And there's something about the world that we live in um, that is consumed with a different standard. It has a different standard of what it means to be pure of what it means to live a good life. And God made us very specifically. He made us with very specific purposes in mind, which is why he, as a loving father, comes to us and says, don't do this. Don't do this. And comes to some things that we don't like doing and says, you need to do this. Whether it's reading our Bible, whether it's being in community, whether it's um, not having sex outside of marriage, big things like that. God calls us to do that because he has purified us. He has made us pure. And he has made us to live a life that glorifies him, that honors him, that lives in the way that he intended. Why? Because he made us. He's not just a random um, bystander giving his opinion. He's like, I made you. With my own hands, I formed you. I made you exactly the way you are. With all your quirks and weird bits. Intentionally. That was not a mistake. Because I love you and I know you. And so when he calls us to think pure thoughts, he does it because he knows how we're supposed to work. Yeah? And I have to stress that because I know for me, when I first, I first encountered this, I was like, well, is this a God who's just trying to control me and trying to manipulate me? This is a God who loves us and knows us and cares for us. So whatever is pure. I think there's one particular picture that helps illustrate this. I was going to move on and I realized I had nothing to mention and this is great. It's worth, it's worth laboring. And um, I did it in Altum. as kind of like just testing the water. Is this too far? And they, no one stopped me so I'm, I'm going to do it again and we'll see how far it goes. There was this wonderful um, part in Peter where he's talking about purity and he uses this proverb um, that says this. He takes the picture of purity and it basically says someone who sins is like a dog who returns to his vomit. Isn't that a wonderful picture? 
And some of you grew up with dogs. Some of you will know this picture intimately. And you have these moments with dogs where they're adorable and wonderful. But they do have this odd um, tendency to just eat weird junk, right? They're like, this looks good. I'll eat it. And they eat it. And then they realize, oh, actually, this is a really bad idea. And then they stick it out. And if that's not bad enough, you have this moment. And some of you will know this moment when they're looking at their vomit that they've just thrown out. And they're thinking, that looks really good. <laughs> and, and you're like, no, don't you dare. And they're like, I'm going to do it. And you're like, don't you do it. Don't, and they're like, it looks so good, I'm going to do it. And, they go, and they're there, they're lapping up this thing. It's just the most revolting thing ever. And everyone finds it gross, and you guys all find it gross. And it's a complete disgusting image that's now like burned into your memory, which is perfect. Because this is what God says. When we have been cleansed from sin... And we go back to the sin that God called us out of. The darkness that God called us out of. When we go and fill our minds and our actions and our speech with impurity, it's like a dog returning to his vomit. It's a horrible picture, but it's a wonderfully helpful picture. Amen? Amen. Right, cool. You're never going to forget that. It's good. I'm glad I went back there. Okay, whatever is pure. Next up, we're moving on to whatever is lovely. We see that God takes things in this world that are ugly whether it's ugly things that have been done, whether it's people who are full of shame and guilt, whether it's situations that are just a mess. And you read the Bible, and the more you read it, the more you say, wow, there was so much ugliness in this Bible. But God makes beautiful things out of ugliness. There's that wonderful quote by Gunga that says, you make beautiful things out of the dust. This is a wonderful picture of what God has done in our life, but also what he's going to do with this world. He is redeeming and reconciling this world to himself. And it means when we are surrounded by ugliness, when we're in messy social situations, where we're in workplaces just full of bitter, bitter ranting and gossiping and all of this kind of ugliness, God calls us to see God's beauty. And he calls us to see God's beauty for several reasons. First of all, we're made in the image of God. Friends, no matter how broken your life is, how ugly you may feel, how shameful you may feel, how many mistakes you may have made, the most valuable thing that lives in you is the image of God in you. No one can take that away from you. No one can burn that away from you. No one can insult that out of you. You have the image of God in you and you are wonderful and beautiful exactly as you are. It's not a beauty, a worldly beauty. It's a beauty that God has put in you by putting his own image in you. There is beauty inside of everyone. There is also a beauty that he is redeeming out of this world. This is a world that he's not done with. He's not going to burn it all away. He, he is building for himself a new world again, which will be, um, if, if you like, we see the picture of it in Revelation. He's making all things new. And God calls us to think, for, uh, to rest our mind on the things that are beautiful that God has made in this world. And it means that we can look beyond the ugliness that's around us. It means that people like Jackie Pullinger can go to the darkest, most bitter, most horrible, most disgusting parts of the world, like the walled city in Hong Kong, and see beauty. See in these people just beauty because she knows God, because she sees the image of God in them. She's able to forgive. She's able to be gracious. She's able to see the glory of God in all things. And this is what God calls us to think of. Whatever is lovely. And then finally, I'm going to lump the last three together. He says, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Think about these things. 
These, he's talking about commendable things, excellent things. And, but, but he's saying, if there is any, as if we have to search for it a little bit. And sometimes we will find we get ourselves in situations where we really have to search for things worthy of praise. How many times have we been in that situation where you're like, God, I do not see any good in this. I don't see any good. I don't see what you're doing in this. I don't see how, I speaking to a lady this morning whose mum is in terminal cancer and she's not going to live for much longer. How can you see good in this? My newborn baby might not make it. God, how is there any good in this? I just got fired. God, how is there any good in this? I'm wrestling with depression. God, how is there any good in this? And here's how he calls us to think. Romans 8, 28 is just an amazing verse that I go back to over and over again. He says, and we know that for those who love God, all things, all things work together for good. Friends, this verse on its, on its own will change your life. Because what it says is that in those moments of, of, of despair, in those moments of hopelessness, in, in those moments where you don't see what God is doing, we know a loving father who is working all things for good. He says, for those who love God, that's Christians. If you're a Christian today, he is working everything for good. Everything. And this comes on to my final point, which is another opportunity for, um, for offense. So let's just, I feel like it's biblical. So I'm going to go with this. Uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about pessimism, right? I know this room will roughly be split 50-50 into optimists and pessimists. And the way that pessimists will see optimists is you guys are taking stupid situations and somehow being happy about them for silly reasons. And it's just going to end in pain and sorrow because you're happy for no reason. You look at Californians and you think, your whole state is stupid. I never want to visit. You guys are happy for no reason. Why would you do that? And optimists, on the other flip side, you look at the pessimists and think, why are you guys always upset? Oh my gosh, surely life is better than this. And I think sometimes we can jump around between, should we be an optimist, should we be a pessimist? I find the Bible far more reliable than just trashing personality types. Um, the Bible is really, really helpful because when we know the gospel, we have a story that gives us hope no matter what. And this has a word for both optimists and pessimists. Optimists, stop being excited about stupid things. Stop being excited about things that don't give hope. Stop being excited about things that just aren't really that much of a big deal. Like, there's a new series on Netflix. Yay! Seriously, your life is not going to be changed. That may be exciting, but it's not going to change your whole day. Stop being opt optimistic about ridiculous things. If you're going to be optimistic, be optimistic about the best news of all time. See the gospel in all things. See how good news means that tomorrow is worth living. See how the good news means that today can be filled with joy, whatever happens. Be an optimist for those reasons. And pessimists. If I may for a moment. Let me just, let me just say what pessimists, what, what is okay with this kind of personality type. So I have the joy of working with Melinda on a daily basis. Is she still here? Oh, she is. Okay, right. I need to be careful what I say. Um, so I have the joy of working with Melinda. And uh, I would say Melinda is a classic example of a realist, right? When we come up with crazy ideas, she's like, I've got a list of 15 things of why you haven't really thought about this yet. Here's how this idea is going to fall apart. And we need to do something about this. And she is wonderful like that. This church has not fallen apart because she and other people like her who are realists are here. Realists are good people. You are very welcome. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Please continue to do what you are doing. However... When realism develops to pessimism of, oh, all of this is just terrible. Everything is falling apart. Everything is going to go badly somehow or another. You see a good situation? No, I found some bad bits in that situation. I would say, 
graciously as your brother. That is not remotely biblical. To live with this attitude, this driving force of pessimism, just it flies in the face of the gospel. It says, God, the good news you have proclaimed over my life, the, um, the death you've given to death, the new life you've given me, ah, it's, not really, it's not really changing things. It hasn't really changed my life. Pessimists, when you revel in your pessimism, you say, God, your gospel isn't really enough. The death Jesus died and the new life he rose again to isn't really enough. Friends, we need to live with a different outlook. Not optimism because we need to be more Californian or just need to think more positive thoughts or see silver linings around clouds. All of that is rubbish. We need to live with a real optimism that's rooted on actual good news. This world more than ever struggles with depression. And some of it is very clinical. Some of it is genuinely biology that is complicated. And I don't want to dismiss that. But often it's because we root our optimism on silly, stupid things like careers and relationships and silly hopes in this world that aren't going to give us happiness. Friends, we have a gospel that will give us real joy. Stop shortchanging ourselves. And even as Christians, even as Christians, we know this good news, but we still fill our life with things that won't satisfy us. That's where we need to replace optimism in this world, the, the frothy, bubbly stuff with real, solid, good news. We are loved by God. We are pursued by God. We, are, we have a purpose to glorify him in this life. Our lives are not wasted. Praise God. This gives real, solid, significant hope. And finally, I'm going to finish on this. He says, think about these things. How do we change the way we think? Some of you are thinking, yeah, yeah, that's great. I've got to think of all these things. But the reality is, I can't change. I've tried. I've prayed. I've asked this person. I've done these funny routines. And I, like, I'm really struggling. The Bible has a few hints. I'm going to finish on them, and then I'm going to finish. First of all, it begins by recognizing our thought patterns. What are we thinking about? What story are we surrounding ourselves in? Often things that we do or we say that don't honor God, they're rooted in a thinking that is unhelpful, that is not based upon truth. We see this um, picture of the way that deal, Jesus deals with truth and lies spoken over him. You, there are these moments when Satan comes to him or when he's being tempted in the desert. We see Satan come to him and speaks lies over him. And for all of us, we have that in our life at some stage. The enemy hates us. He is constantly speaking lies over us. And every time, whether it's something like, you're ugly, it's a slap. You're worthless. Those people don't really like you. Your life has no meaning. And every time Satan speaks over it, it's a lie over us. What does Jesus do? When Satan comes to him and says, hey, speaks a lie over him, Jesus says, it is written. It is written. Over and over again. He says, it is written. And he replies to Satan's lies with truth. And we can go into lots of different examples. The reality is, each of us are different. We need to sit down with people who know us and say, these are some of the things I'm wrestling with. Do you have people in your life? Are you in other people's lives? Are you having these significant conversations? I know conversation relationship is difficult. It takes time. Some of you introverts, it takes time. Like, we haven't hung out enough. We need more coffees before we start talking about the real stuff. Like, this needs to be fought for, honestly. And I know there's loads of really exciting things that take your attention and work's really busy. And there's like, Netflix has released a whole load more box sets and I've just got no time to do everything. Community really, really matters for these things, right? 
Because sometimes we don't recognise these lies ourselves and it's only when we share it and someone's like, you know, that's a lie. That's not God. That's the enemy speaking into your life. And we can reply truth to one another. And it's so good. And we so need that. Another quick thing. Sing. Sing. We've just been singing a whole bunch of amazing truth. What, do you sing? I know some of you sing. You sing all the time. That's fine. Maybe sing a little less. But for some of you, you don't really sing. Find a place you can sing. Shower, car, anywhere. Find somewhere you can sing. Wonderful biblical truth. There's lots of Christian songs that suck. Don't sing them. Sing songs full of truth. Full of God's good news over ourselves again and again. We see, we see in the Bible, there's lots of things they do repeat in a repeated way. There's something called the Shema, which they did in the Old Testament. Which is where day and night they say this truth of God over themselves. They speak it over themselves. We sometimes need to repeatedly come to God and speak truth over ourselves. And it's so important that we get this truth into our soul and we answer lies with wonderful, glorious truth.